Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. I'd like to welcome you to another empowering hour. We begin as always with the latest on health and healing. This is a study from the Medical College of Sohu University out of China, and it's about drinking green tea on a daily basis. If you do, it can help lower your risk of cardiovascular disease, especially if you're diabetic. Now, we really have two problems that are integrated. One is we have post-stable hypertension suffered by about 60 to 70 million Americans. That's an awful large percentage of our population cannot control their blood pressure. And that means they're at far greater risk of a heart attack or a stroke. You have an elevated blood pressure, and you may not even know it. That's why it's called the silent killer. So at least twice a year, have your blood pressure checked and see if it's in the normal range. Now, there are a lot you can do to keep your blood pressure normal, but I'm not going into that at this moment. It's just, if it's high, and even if you're on medication, there's problems. But now we have another problem, diabetes. Diabetes was very rare when I was growing up. Now it is common. You have two forms of diabetes. You have those that have been diagnosed, and that's about 30 million Americans, more or less, and then you have the undiagnosed or pre-diabetic. They have all the, all the reasons that they're going to go full diabetic. They're overweight. All right? They have high blood pressure. And then they end up with diabetes. Or they have diabetes, and then they end up with these other conditions. Either way, if you put the two together, you're dealing with more than 100 million Americans, minimally. All right? It's more like one-third of the entire population. So if you could drink green tea every day and lower your risk of cardiovascular disease, that's a good thing. But if you're overweight and diabetic, with a high intake of green tea, decaffeinated green tea, you have a lower risk of developing cardiovascular disease, coronary heart disease, and stroke than those who do not consume green tea. And this was published in the Archives of Public Health. And by the way, this is not a small study, 4,756 overweight and obese diabetic patients. And uh, they lowered the risk by 40%. That's a big deal to keep you from dying, right? Now, another study, this is from Uppsala University in Sweden. It's about herpes. Now, herpes is a whole family of viruses. And probably the most deadly is human herpes 6. And herpes can double your risk of developing dementia. Now, herpes overall is just, it's virtually epidemic in the United States. Probably 90% of the population has it. Now, it's, some people have it and don't even manifest symptoms. And that's good. And there are ways that we can actually overcome that herpes. And it's with the whole protocol to itself. And we did it at the Tri-State Healing Center where a lot of people had herpes. Mind you, you can get herpes by eating in a restaurant. If the if glass that you're drinking from, the silverware you're eating from, has not been sterilized, and most of it has not been sterilized. And uh, it's very easy. And we're talking about non-sexual transmission of herpes. So anyone who's received a herpes diagnosis may be twice as likely to develop dementia than people who have not. But there's a lot you can do about that. 
and this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, it followed a thousand seventy-year-old subjects for fifteen years, and to confirm that there is an association. But this association happens late in life. So there's two ways we can do. One, we can simply eat a healthy plant-based diet. We can exercise, both moderate and more intensive, on a daily basis for 45 minutes. We can take proper supplements, including L-lysine and quercetin, vitamin C. Those all help suppress herpes or destroy herpes. And that means that we're going to have less likely or no likelihood of having dementia at all. The, so that's just a healthy lifestyle is going to prevent your, or lessen your likelihood of having dementia. But if you're the average person and have the average lifestyle, then you're going to have, whether you have herpes or not, you're going to have a greater risk of dementia because everything you're putting into your body is pro-inflammatory. And when you create inflammation in the brain, central nervous system, you're in trouble. And we do this, and we don't feel it. It's not like there's pain or symptoms. They're generally not. So that's one way of dealing with it. Another way is that you can have intravenous ozone or autohemotherapy where they take a amount of blood out, they oxygenate it, put it back in the body, and that also helps kill herpes. And that's been very successful. Because probably 95% of all the people who had AIDS that I work with personally, uh, for 10 years from 1974 to 84, before AIDS was officially diagnosed, I was working with Dr. Stephen Kaes, one of America's leading uh, gay physicians. He had a practice of exclusively gays, and he couldn't help some of them. He asked me would I help, and I did, and I worked with him. I helped 800 of his patients over a 10-year period, reverse all their conditions, get back to complete health. But then when AIDS was officially diagnosed in 1984, I then saw that the two groups, the work group I had worked with, really had AIDS. It was just before it was officially uh, discovered. And herpes was common, especially herpes 6. And uh, so I worked out a protocol at very high dose intravenous vitamin C and shared that with my 22 medical staff. And these board certified physicians started using it in graduated steps and was able to help them overcome their AIDS. Every single person, not a single person died. 2,000 patients with full-blown AIDS, not one died. But more importantly, we helped them overcome their hepatitis. That was very common. And uh, herpes. And get back their health. So there, there's positive solutions to this problem. They're just letting you know what the problem is. Our next study comes from Central Institute of Mental Health in Germany. The study shows that physical activity can counteract the negative consequences of being alone. Yes, researchers at the Central Institute of Mental Health have taken increasing social isolation as an opportunity to examine the relevance of physical activity for mental health in the context of being alone. Now, at different times, all of us are alone. And sometimes it's a very good thing to have downtime, alone time for yourself. But we're also creatures that love to 
cohabitate. We love to be around other people. We love friends and family and, and uh, relationships. And we love to go places with people, to do things with people. But that's not always possible. And after COVID, which forced a lot of people to be alone, we started seeing people become obese, commit suicide, start taking drugs. In fact, over 100,000 Americans died from drug overuse in just one single year. We've never had that happen before. And now a lot of older people are suffering from loneliness. They withdraw. The network, social networks they once had are not there anymore. Or those who have had wonderful lives, they've had loving partners, and then that partner has passed. And they feel disconnected. So, and that's, that's true. And we should focus upon this. This should be a priority. And it's not. But, according to this study, physical activity, just going power walking, go, go for a walk for an hour. And there are plenty of places to go for walks. That's very important. Because that can help compensate for the negative consequences of being alone on well-being, especially the psychological and neurobiological uh, vulnerability of people. All right? So we can't always have people in our lives, people that we'd like to have in our lives, but we can certainly get out and exercise, and that can help us overcome depression. And finally, from Harvard Medical School, higher dietary nitrate and green leafy vegetables intake associated with lower risk of glycoma. Yes. For those of you who have been eating your vegetables, good for you. You're on the right side. For those of you who may not eat all your green vegetables fresh, but you're able to use all of the different advertisements, you see them every day on television, where they've uh, taken vegetables and cleaned them and dehydrated them, hopefully at low temperature, so they're still raw and living food, and taking those in, good for you. Because the greater intake of nitrate from green leafy vegetables, you have up to 30% lower risk of primary open angle glycoma. This was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Ophthalmology. And the elevated intraocular pressure and impaired autoregulation of optic nerve blood flow are implicated in primary open angle glycoma. The optic nerve damage from multiple possible causes that is chronic and progress over time. So, that nitrite and nitrate, precursors of nitric oxide, and nitric oxide is what you get when you have a glass of pomegranate juice or beet juice. It helps lower your blood pressure, helps increase the healing of your arteries and the epithelium, the lining of your arteries. It's really good for you. It's beneficial for all your blood circulation. And this was done at the uh, Harvard School of Mental Health in Boston. So, good news there. And that's the latest on health and healing. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. We broadcast all over the world, and as a result, a lot of different people ask us to address different issues. One very common issue now is whether we can give the tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine when we're not told the truth about why this money is being given, 
how it's being spent. And most importantly, this money's all borrowed money. At the same time, we're having very serious economic crisis for the vast majority of Americans. Yes, the professional class is doing very well and better than they've ever done. And then the millionaire class, we have more millionaires than ever before, more billionaires than ever before. Okay, that's fine. But what about just the average working class person? The person we don't pay any attention to in America. Unless it's election time, then we pander. What about the people that make our food, grow our food, prepare our food? What about the people working in restaurants? What about small business people? What about the people on pensions uh, that are not enough to cover all their costs today because of inflation? We're not caring about their interest. And people ask a basic question. It's a legitimate question. Shouldn't we care about helping the average American with universal health care? And yet there are a group of people who don't want that. I sent an entire article with all the scientific references to every member of Congress. I did it twice over a 10-year period because for almost 20 years, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States were medical bills. And then after that, it was 2008. It was because of home foreclosures and bankruptcies. In both cases, you have to ask why. There could have been a moratorium by the President of the United States, by executive order, meeting with all the bankers, all the mortgage companies, the people holding the mortgages, and he could have said, no more home foreclosures charge only 15 to 20% of a person's total income on their mortgage so that they can still stay in their home. But he didn't do that. He showed his true allegiance and he backed the, the different uh, bills that allowed him to give up to 80 plus billion dollars a month to corporations. Many of them had gotten out of debt that they put themselves into but not a single American was made whole. No corporations came back into communities. They once allowed that community to thrive. So bankruptcy soared. Today, bankruptcies are soaring. Healthcare, right at the top of the list. People can't pay their car payments, their insurance payments, their rent, their mortgages, their student debt, their credit card debt. As a result of all this debt that we're swimming in, we have about $330 trillion in debt. We're doing nothing to lower this debt, nor are we doing anything to de-ghettoize American cities. We're doing nothing to help the millions of homeless children, 16 to 20 million Americans that are living at the poverty level or just above. Why can't we spend this money on them? Why can't we help bring industries, businesses, jobs back to the cities that have been gutted and ghettoized? You do realize, and I know this audience realizes, that the more people can work at a living wage job and therefore be able to provide for their family and pay their debts, and even have savings, the less crime there's going to be the less domestic violence there's going to be, the less divorce there's going to be, the less problems and anxiety 
and depression there's going to be. So the question is, why then would we continue to give what will amount now with this latest bill for $150 billion to Ukraine? Now that's just on the humanistic and spiritual side of the equation, a populist equation, helping the average person, without whom our lives would simply come to a standstill. They drive the cabs, the Uber, they, they run the subway system, they grow your food, they, they make your clothing, your eyeglasses, your cell phones. Everything you have in your life, a person that you will never meet, a person that's given almost no credit, has created. Why don't we have more union jobs today? But we don't. So that's one part of the equation. But there's a separate part of the equation that is not being discussed honestly or openly with anyone in the government or the mainstream media, and that is this. What happens to the money that goes there? You're talking about arguably the most corrupt country in Europe, that everything there is a payoff system. In, in the uh, Obama administration, Gloria Newland at the State Department led the coup that took a democratically elected president of the Ukraine, replaced him with a vassal of the United States. How do we know? Well, we have the actual audio tape of Gloria Newland, America's number one neocon, her and her husband, speaking with the ambassador to Ukraine of they selecting the, the cabinet uh, for the president. Well, that's, that's regime change. That's illegal. That goes against international laws. Why has no one exposed that? Not a single article. And at the same time, with the new regime coming in, they decided to attack innocent civilians living in the Donbass area, meaning Russian-speaking Ukrainian citizens living up on the border of Russia. Why has no one done an expose of that and how that played into Putin's ultimate decision as opposed as I am to that decision to invade? And then why is it that within 10 days of invading, before there was this massive carnage, destruction of people and, and infrastructure, Putin decided, let's have a, let's go to peace. And he and the ministry in Ukraine decided upon a peace treaty. And they agreed to it. They ratified it. But then in comes Boris Johnson as a representative of the United States, and he kills it. As a result, there was no peace treaty. Why has that not been on 60 Minutes, showing the people, showing the Ukrainian people and, and government who says, yes, we had a, a peace agreement, and we would not have had to give away uh, any of Ukraine we would have agreed to denazification of our government, which we would agree to, and uh, no signing uh, to be a member of NATO. So we would have agreed to these things because we, we have maintained our sovereignty. But Boris Johnson and the United States didn't want this. Why didn't they want it? Could you imagine how many qualified minds that we could have explaining the military-industrial complex, the lobbyists they have, because they're the ones who are making a lot of that money. In fact, they're now bragging in the media that we need a war with Ukraine. We need it 
because if we have a war with Ukraine, that money comes back to the United States. That gives jobs, high-paying jobs, to people working at um, all of the different uh, war companies here and the hundreds of thousands of employees they have. What kind of logic is that? So we're willing to sacrifice 500,000 young Ukrainian men. The average age today is 44 because all the young people have been killed or left the country. So you see, there's legitimacy in challenging the money going to Ukraine. And Ukraine has no chance in the world of winning this war. And contrary to all the lies, Russia and Putin have never used this as an excuse to invade all of Europe and Poland and NATO countries. That's just a lie. So let's hear what Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul, has to say concerning money going to Ukraine. He is one of the only voices because he doesn't accept money from the PAC groups and the lobbyists representing the military industrial complex. Now to Senator Rand Paul. What we have here is a Ukraine first bill. This bill was never really about securing our border, but about securing another's country's border. What we have here is a failure of the elites of Washington on both sides of the aisle, the leadership in the Democrat Party, the leadership in the Republican Party. What we have here is a failure of these elites to understand that the American people want to put America first. 61% of Americans live from paycheck to paycheck, and they want to put Ukraine first. I want you to talk to your constituents at home, the ones who live paycheck to paycheck, and tell them why you're shipping $60 billion to Ukraine. This will be $170 billion. We have never before in the history of the United States flooded so much money into another country. 61% of our country lives paycheck to paycheck. Eight out of 10 families that make $50,000 or less don't have enough money to pay for their bills in two weeks when if their check doesn't come. If they have one interruption in their family, one thing that sets them back, one unexpected expense, they don't have enough money to pay their bills, and you want to put Ukraine first. This is why the Democrat Party is losing the working man. This is why the Republicans have become the party of the working class. This is why many, if not most, members of the unions are now looking at Republicans because we support the working man. We support the working women of America, and we recognize that they do not want to send their hard-earned money and taxes halfway across the world. What does their money go for? Do we know what they're doing with their money in Ukraine? Well, we do know that the money wanted to, went to fund six fashion brands to go to the Paris Fashion Show. We do know that it's funding small businesses to sell ladies' handbags. We do know that it's paying for the salaries of 57,000 first responders. What about the first responders in our country? What about the people who get in an ambulance and have a $35,000 bill in our country? What about tackling the problems of America first? Instead, this bill is a Ukraine first bill. 
It's a Ukraine first policy. According to the Ukraine first party, which includes elites of both parties, war is good. War is useful. War profits make us stronger. Sounds a bit Orwellian. They say that war profits will build the defense industrial base. This is the part they used to say quietly. They used to whisper this. They used to never say it out loud that war profits fund the defense industrial base. And by golly, we're going to be stronger the more war profits there are. According to the Ukraine First Party, war's not so bad. War profits make us stronger. Lost in this reprehensible argument is any sense of grief over the 500,000 dead. For the mothers and fathers weeping graveside, little sense of grief, little sense of understanding that supporting and lauding grief is supporting and lauding the death of war. Missing from the war profits, our good argument, is any sense of compassion for the thousands of lives that will yet be lost by the prolongation of this war. If military contracts for 100,000 rifles are good, what about a million rifles? If military contracts for 1,000 tanks are good, what about a million tanks? If military contracts for 500 bombs are good, what about military contracts for 5,000 bombs? Missing from the argument that war profit is good, that the more armaments we sell, the better, is compassion for the deaths that we're talking about, the prolongation of war. You know, war doesn't end typically in victory. Almost all wars end in negotiated settlement. The longer there are unlimited war uh, profits, the longer there are unlimited weapons being sent in Ukraine, the longer the war goes on, the more people who die. This is a grinder. It's a meat grinder over there. There are whole towns without young men. Do I think Russia's in the wrong? Of course they are. Are they the aggressor? Of course they are. Do I have sympathy for Ukraine? Absolutely. But we also are now funneling money to a country that has no elections. They've canceled their presidential elections. They've suppressed speech. They've banned certain opposition parties. They've banned certain opposition press. They've banned uh, officials of opposition religion. Now, this should bother people because it is said that American might and foreign aid is to express our power and our values. Are our values no elections? Are our values suppressing speech? What's well, become confusing even in our country, as the Democrat Party has become the party of censorship, they are the party that agrees that the Biden administration is okay to meet with the FBI, to meet with Homeland Security, and to meet in the offices of Twitter, meet in the offices of Facebook. They suppressed for over a year anybody who was willing to say that it looks like the virus came from a lab in Wuhan. That was suppressed for over a year. Not just by private business, but by the government, by the Biden administration meeting, the FBI, Homeland Security, meeting with the tech companies. So it doesn't surprise me that they don't care too much. Just get the money out the door, even though in Ukraine they're living under a regime 
where speech has been suppressed. What the American firsters, what the Ukraine firsters are really arguing for is an America last policy. They're really arguing for a longer, bigger, more deadly war because it expands the profits of the defense industrial base. How despicable. How absolutely disgusting. They're saying the quiet part out loud. They're okay with war. The longer the war, the more profits, the stronger the American defense base. It's this circular argument. We're not sending the money to Ukraine. It's coming right back. It's coming back in the form of profits to the American arms merchants. It's okay. We're really not going to lose $170 billion because it's coming back in profits. We'll make more bombs. Whatever happened to the progressive left? But wasn't it great when there were people on the left who actually were progressive on things such as war? How absolutely disgusting. To argue that war profits are a benefit, a benefit that somehow overshadows the awful specter of war's death and carnage. Again, you can agree or disagree with Rand Paul, but at least look at all the facts before you make up your mind. Now we're going to go to a different clip. This clip is about an Israeli soldier, and everyone, male or female, except for the ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, they do not go into the armed forces, but the, every other citizen must serve in the armed forces in, uh, in Israel. What happens when you've been an occupying power from its inception? What happens when you can control every aspect of a Palestinian life, either in the West Bank or Gaza? What happens when you create a terrorist group, Hamas, Israel created Hamas, in order to put a divide between the Palestinian Authority and Yasser Arafat and the other rest of the Palestinians? What happens when a Palestinian cannot go out and pick their own olives in a thousand-year-old olive orchard? Instead, local settlement individuals come and just shoot in their videos, shoot right in the chest an unarmed Palestinian pleading not to tear down and chainsaw down his olive trees that were a thousand years old. No one's arrested, and if they were, wouldn't matter because the settlers' courts are run by settlers. Therefore, they're all pro-settler. Therefore, they're confiscating land that does not belong to them and moving in. They can throw a family out. They can give them 24 hours. In one of the videos you see, we're giving you 24 hours. If you're here in 24 hours, you and your family will be shot. And they meant it. And we never hear that story. Counting calories that Israel officials reduced the amount of calories to nearly starvation, just enough to prevent them from starving to death, but not enough for them to be healthy, nutrient-positive, uh, and to thrive. And you can't just go to a hospital. You can't just leave Gaza. You have to get permission. You have to go through checkpoints. You're in a prison, an outdoor prison, the largest in the world. It is an apartheid state unless you believe that Israel was meant by some divine province from God that, to be your land, in which case you see the Palestinians 
as a threat, existential threat. And the majority of the Israeli people, unfortunately, feel that there is a real and present threat that if they did not control Palestinians as they have, that the Palestinians would turn to terrorism. But the average and the vast majority of Palestinians want peace. They don't want they don't want this conflict. I don't want to see a single Israeli citizen, a Jewish citizen, living in fear. I want them to prosper in happiness. I want every Palestinian the same identical right. I want people to live in harmony together. Our current body politic won't allow that. And the money we're supplying, how is that being used in a constructive way to bring peace? Let's hear Abby Martin, a phenomenal journalist. Abby is interviewing an Israeli soldier who's telling us the truth about what he has come to believe now that he's no longer a soldier. With the Trump administration in power, Israeli politicians have been celebrating this new opportunity, ramping up settlement projects. Some of these are even financed by Trump's own son-in-law, rumored to be the president's pick to broker so-called peace in the region. Can I reveal, Jared, how long we've known you? (laughs) While these illegal settlements grow into Palestinian villages, some are built directly in the middle of thriving cultural centers, such as Hebron, one of the most hyper-militarized cities in the world. When I was in Hebron, I was shocked by how aggressively the police state imposed an apartheid system. All of the residents I talked to had horror stories of life under brutal occupation. Sometimes Israeli soldiers themselves dissent, even in the face of very severe repercussions. One of whom is Iran Afrati, who was stationed in Hebron during his time in the Israeli army. Since leaving the military after years as a combat soldier, Afrati has dedicated his life to documenting Israeli war crimes and fighting the apartheid system. Iran, you went from being a soldier in the IDF to being a very outspoken critic of both the occupation and continued takeover of Palestine. What made you go through such a profound transformation? Well, uh, it didn't something that happened immediately, obviously. Growing up in Israel, you know, you ask me what was my role in the military. I'm not sure that my role started with my enlisted. I think my role started when I was about five and I realized that my father is putting uniform and going out to Lebanon uh, as a reserve soldier. That's the first time I felt that I'm a part of the military. Uh, the next time was in uh, you know, kindergarten when soldiers came in to tell us about uh, the independent war uh, just after the Holocaust Day Memorial. Um, the next time will be when I was 16 and uh, I will get my first draft letter and in this draft letter, it will be written that I am a property of the military. This is something that every kid in Israel goes through. When you're getting into the military system in the end, you're already so much embedded inside the military. The military is a part of your identity. It's as much you as you are Israeli or Jewish, for that matter, in Israel. And going into the military, I was expecting to be a manifestation of me just in uniform, uh, protecting my country, protecting my family. I grew up on hearing the stories from Auschwitz of my grandma. So my uh, mother's side, my grandma and grandpa was the only survivors from their family, from the Holocaust. Uh, All of my grandma's family were killed in Auschwitz. 
the stories from my grandpa that was also the only survivor from his family from the Holocaust. And from the other side, my grandpa and grandma from my father's side grew up and hearing this, their stories about Jerusalem and what it is to grow up without freedom under the British mandate. For me, being in the military is to protect them and to make sure that our life will go on as in freedom and you know, in good uh, will. Um, I went through seven months of boot camp, and in the end of the seven months, I found myself in Hebron, uh, this, the only city that have a settlement in the middle of the city. So getting into the Hebron, uh, one of the first things that I had to do was protect a Jewish holiday. And my job is to put on curfew 180,000 Palestinians. So settlers from throughout the West Bank and Israel, Jewish settlers could come into Hebron and celebrate. So there's thousands and thousands of uh, Israelis and Jewish settlers from across the West Bank coming to celebrate. And the only way to keep them protected is to make sure that not, no Palestinian is living his home. So literally one of my first tasks was to roam the streets and make sure Palestinians understand they're going into their home and they cannot leave until a second notice, until the next time we're coming in. And the first time was like a movie. You know, we, we birth in into the city with our guns in our hands and our uniform and vest with grenades and uh, six packs of ammunition. And we just scream in curfew. And you see the chaos. You see the people just running from place to place, closing down their shops, running home. Because wherever you are when the curfew starts, this is where you're stuck. And you cannot go anywhere else. So you better be at home when we're starting to count the curfew. Now, the official orders uh, to anyone who breaks curfew is shoot to kill. I never did that. I never met anyone who shoot to kill uh, in this process of a curfew. But that was the orders, and they knew it pretty well. They knew what they need to do. Uh, this feeling of power uh, at once came as a big confusion to me. I think I, I wasn't clear um, if I'm enjoying the power of controlling all of these people, or if I don't understand why kids look at me frightened. Why are they running away when I'm walking into the street? Before my service, I work as an educator. I love kids. So I think I was very confused on why a, a kid will find me uh, scary. You know, I, I realize now in, in perspective, it got to do something with the fact that I have my boots on, my uniform, my helmet, uh, my six packs of ammunition, my two hand grenades, my M16 in my <laughs> hand, but I didn't realize that right. at the time. Right. And, I, and I really couldn't understand that. Um, and I think in a very rapid, paced, I realized that my job is actually to maintain an apartheid system. Very, uh, very early on, I understood that the rights that the Jewish settlers have are not the rights that the Palestinians have. I understood that I cannot touch a Jewish settler if he is attacking a Palestinian. The best I can do is call a local police department to come handle it, like I would do at home in Jerusalem. So these Jewish settlers that live in Hebron are living under the same rights that I live in, in Jerusalem, but the Palestinian next to them, next house over, next building over, sometimes next apartment over, lives under my rule, my military rule. And I can do whatever I want with him. I can take his home as a temporary base for a few hours to a few days to a few weeks. I can decide that I'm arresting the people of the house and tying them up to defense of my base. Um, 
if we will get an order to demolish their home or just lock their front door and don't let them out into the street their house is on, a street that only Jewish settlers can walk on and Palestinians cannot. So they have to walk through windows to yards into the other side, into the Kasbah of Hebron. I think realizing all of that in a very, very early stage in my service helped me understood that someone was lying to me along the way. I didn't feel like I'm protecting anyone. I didn't feel like I'm helping anyone feeling more safe. I feel like I'm terrorizing people. I feel like for the first time in my life, the boundaries between good and bad that I learned as a kid, and obviously I learned that I'm on the good side, uh, was broken. I felt like I am the terrorist. And my job was literally to scare people so they cannot think about acting against the Israeli settlers or the Israeli military. That was actually our defined mission, to make sure that to instill fear in the hearts of Palestinians in Hebron. And that's exactly what we did. I think Hebron is a really um, intense example of, of apartheid, obviously. Like you just said, the settlement in the middle of the city, it's extremely visible. You have the caged streets, the ghost town. It's, it's horrifying. Why did you speak up and why did you do what you did knowing that you would suffer such repercussions and potentially be banned from returning back to your country? Um, well, growing up in Israel, like I said, I believe that I was the good guy. I mean, the story that all of us are being told all around the world is that the, the very clear difference between good and bad people are there. You learn about the Holocaust growing up. I saw my grandma screaming in the middle of the nights, memories from Auschwitz in our mind, memories to our family. Um, I knew that I am going to be a good human being. You know, in the age of uh, 15, 16, I began being almost obsessed with trying to understand the Nazi side in the Holocaust. Uh, not only to hear the stories of the victims, of the Jewish victims and any other victims from the Holocaust, but to try to understand how can a, a Nazi soldiers get up in the morning, give his kids a kiss, his wife a hug, and go out to the camps and do his job. I just couldn't understand that. And when I got into the occupied territories, uh, for the first time I understood how can there be a contradicting in inside yourself. As a human being, you could do your job and be a one person at home, be a loving, caring uh, you know, boyfriend or a son or a brother, uh, and at the same time hold people under a regime so oppressed that people are dying not from only your bullets, but the amount of calories uh, being entered into their territory, like in Gaza, from depression or sickness, uh, this realization during my time as a soldier uh, of me on the right side of history gave me this urge that something have to be done, something have to be spoken, understanding that nothing is really changing from inside, that you have to step outside and start talking with the world about what's going on. Uh, and that's the only way you can live in a place, not only for Palestinians, but for me as well. You know, I don't want to live in an ethnocracy. I don't want to live in an only Jewish state that values uh, a privileged Jewish life on every other life. This urges me to understand that I want my kids to grow up in a place when they don't have to oppress anyone, they don't have to be soldiers. Uh, 
I guess that's what pushed me to do what I'm doing. Your humanity. <laughs> Let's talk about your time um, after getting out of the military and then you went through a series uh, through the West Bank, interviewing soldiers, getting their testimony. Talk about some of your experiences there that cemented your belief system now and um, open your mind a little bit more. I think after I left the military, I was still under the impression that the things that I was going through were my personal uh, experience. And finally, for those of you who keep, you know, claiming that Barack Obama was a president of peace and he abhorred the, you know, the, the way that homeless people were treated and, and how the immigrants coming to the United States were treated, and especially the children, well, there's a reality. And that's not the reality. Let's hear a legislator in the House challenge the idea that Obama was a peaceful president. And I think it exposes the raw politics behind it. Um, I have a couple of points I'd like to make. The only president who I am aware of who actually assassinated American citizens was President Obama. So perhaps the ranking member should revisit her history books. I have an article I'm here from the ACLU stating the ACLU and CCR have filed a lawsuit challenging the government's targeted killing of three U.S. citizens in drone strikes far from any con armed conflict zone. In Alaki versus Panetta, the group charges that the U.S. government's killings of U.S. citizens in Yemen last year violated the Constitution's fundamental guarantee against the deprivation of life without due process of law. The killings under Obama were part of a broader program of targeted killing by the United States outside of the context of armed conflict and based on vague legal standards, a closed executive process and evidence never presented to the courts. And as for kids in cages, again, that was President Obama. Several former Obama administration officials took to social media and news outlets last month to explain a gallery of years-old photos that showed immigrant children sleeping in shoddy conditions at a government-run holding facility in Arizona. The images which the Associated Press first published in 2014 during the Obama administration resurfaced recently for reasons that remain unclear and quickly prompted viral outrage on Twitter. One particularly disturbing image showed two children sleeping on mattresses on the floor inside what appeared to be a cage. A number of prominent liberals and even a former Obama administration official shared the photos, mistakenly believing that they depicted the Trump administration's treatment of immigrant children who were forcibly separated from their parents. John Favreau, who worked as a speechwriter for former President Barack Obama, tweeted, this is happening right now, and the only debate that matters is how we force our government to get these kids back to their families as fast as humanly possible. Favreau said he later deleted the tweet after social media users pointed out that the photos were taken during the Obama administration. So, I think it's important to correct the record as to actually who assassinated American citizens being President Obama and it being President Obama who kept kids in cages. And finally, here's Jim Jordan showing the truth with charts, documents about how Anthony Fauci and the people around him tried to make it seem like this was the, uh, the COVID virus came from nature. 
It did not. And they knew it all along, as did all the heads of the agencies like the CDC and the FDA, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and U.S. Public Health Service, Collins. They all knew the truth, and they lied. Here is Jim Jordan speaking truth to power. Crisis. Lessons learned. I think the key lesson learned is that Dr. Fauci misled the country. And he did so right from the get-go. By February 1st, 2020, Dr. Fauci knew seven fundamental facts represented by the first seven posters behind me, seven fundamental facts that he did not share with the American people. First, he understood that American tax dollars went to EcoHealth, and that money was then funneled to a lab in Wuhan, China. Second, he knew EcoHealth was given an exemption from the pause on gain-of-function research. Third, the security standards at this lab in China were deficient. Fourth, Dr. Fauci knew that EcoHealth was not in compliance with their grant reporting requirements. They weren't adhering to the contract. Fifth, gain-of-function research was, in fact, being conducted in the lab in Wuhan, China. Sixth, the P3CO interagency review process wasn't followed in approving the grant to EcoHealth. And finally, seven, Dr. Fauci likely knew let me say it the other way. Dr. Fauci knew that the virus likely came from the lab that our money was sent to. So think about it. American tax dollars went to a company that wasn't properly vetted, that didn't comply with its contract, who sent that money to a lab in China that wasn't up to code and was doing gain-of-function research. And what happens? The very city where that lab is at, a deadly virus breaks out, a deadly virus that would ultimately kill 6 million people around the world. And what did Dr. Fauci do when he had this information, again, February 1st, 2020? What did he do with this information? Did he tell the President of the United States? Did he go to the, did he go to the Commander-in-Chief and said, hey, we've got a deadly virus that's broken out in China, in Wuhan, where we've been sending American tax dollars to a lab that's not up to code, that's doing gain-of-function? Did he tell the President of the United States? Didn't tell the President. Did he tell the Chief of Staff? You know, maybe he thought, you know what, I don't want to take this bad news to the commander-in-chief. Maybe I'll give it to the chief of staff. I know he'll tell him. He talks to him every day. Did he tell the chief of staff? Didn't tell him either. How about the experts in our government? Did he tell, did he tell his boss? Did he tell Secretary Azar? Did he tell Dr. Redfield, Dr. Burks? Did he tell Dr. Gerard, one of our witnesses today? Didn't tell any of them either. No, what he did instead was organize a conference call February 1st, 2020, 2 p.m. with him, Mr. Collins, and 11 virologists from around the world who he had been handing out American tax dollars to for years and years and years. And on that call, it's interesting, on that call are a couple virologists, Dr. Gary, Christian Anderson, who had said things like this. Here's what Christian Anderson said. Virus looks engineered. Virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. He said that on January 31st, the day before. Dr. Gary said on February 1st, that very day, they had the conference call. I don't know how this gets done in nature, but it would be easy to do in a lab. They all get on this conference call. They get their story straight. And three days later, the very people who said this thing came from a lab changed their tune and say that anyone who thinks that's crazy Wow, that's a dramatic change in a matter of days, and the only 
real intervening event was this conference call that Dr. Fauci organizes. You know, it's bad enough when you have the truth and you don't share it, but what's worse is when you have the truth and you say things that directly contradict it. Dr. Fauci told us over the last several years, it wasn't our tax dollars. Yes, it was. Right there's the grant to EcoHealth. He told us it wasn't gain of function. How about this email from NIAD, uh, excuse me, from uh, Mr. Dazic, the head of EcoHealth, to NIAD, where he says, Dear Jenny, this is terrific. We are happy to hear that our gain of function research funding pause has been lifted. Dr. Fauci told us it wasn't a lab leak. Sure looks like it was. Sure looks like it was, and the people he's been handing out the money to, Mr. Anderson, Mr. Gary, said it was. And that's not to mention all the other crazy things he's told us. The vaccinated can't get it. The vaccinated can't transmit it. Boy, he was, he was wrong about those. He told us that masks work. He told us that there was no such thing as natural immunity when it came to this virus. All kinds of things he told us are wrong. So the lessons we learned is you can't trust some of the folks who were supposed to be giving us accurate information because they sure didn't. And they knew from the get-go. They knew from the start. So I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Look forward to seeing exactly what's in this report. We didn't get into any of this. We didn't get into any of this. The chairman mentioned we can't look backwards. What we sure should look backwards, because if you've got a government not giving it to you straight, that's something that you have to make sure we understand so it doesn't happen again. Not only if we don't want a terrible virus happening again, we don't want the government misleading us about a virus that could happen. So I, I, uh, we're going to look at this issue starting next month. We'll look into it. And we'll make sure the country gets the facts like they should have had, like they should have had on February 1st, three years ago. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. I now recognize Mr. Jordan from Ohio for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Mr. Ratcliffe, uh, I think Dr. McCormick was, was on to the right question. It seems to me the fundamental question is why. Why did they lie to us? And why is it taking so long? You point this out in your testimony. Why is it taking so long for every government agency to admit what we all know? Uh, because belief in a lab leak as the origin of, uh, as the start of this, is not a conspiracy theory, is it, Mr. Ratcliffe? No. Why is it taking so long then? I mean, you knew that early on, right? If I, if I look at you, you knew that in, you were confirmed, I think, in May of 2020, and you knew that within weeks that it, this thing came from a lab. In fact, you say that, I think, in your testimony. You say a lab leak is the only explanation, only credible explanation. If this were a trial, the preponderance of the evidence is all on the side of the lab leak. You knew that within weeks. So why did the, why did the government not tell us the truth? Well, I think, you know, when you look at the uh, intelligence community report that the Biden administration put out in October of 21, they, they acknowledge that uh, uh, China's refusal to cooperate, but the report in any way uh, ignores what I think is the inescapable fact and reality that if the CCP had anything exculpatory, anything at all, um, anything that would be helpful um, to showing that no one was to blame for this, right. that this occurred naturally, that, that they would share that. And, um, you know, why not share um, uh, data, samples, research, uh, everything that tends to show that they had access to that would tend to show that this was naturally occurring and tend to show that lab leak theory really was a conspiracy theory. But they didn't do that because they couldn't do that. And to me, 
that's why making an assessment with some level of confidence is something that should have been done a long time ago by the intelligence mm -hmm. community. Um, yeah, we need to protect sources and methods. Um, it's why Mike Pompeo and I labored over how much of this can we put out, hoping right. that it would, would drive um, uh, the, the next administration coming in to declassify more inf information, which they haven't, um, and would drive congressional hearings uh, into the origins of this, which it didn't. Here's, here's, here's what gets me. So the, the director of national intelligence knew this thing came from a lab. The secretary of state knew this thing came from a lab. Common sense tells you this thing came from a lab. And frankly, even the guys who called us names knew it came from a lab because we have their emails. We have their emails from the start. Mr. Gary says, I don't know how this happens in nature. It'd be easy to do in a lab. Mr. Anderson says, this is not consistent with evolutionary. Everyone knew at the get-go. You knew at the get-go. And yet, they tell us just the opposite. Why? Well, you left out the, the top um, public health official, uh, a virologist, Dr. Redfield. Dr. Redfield knew. He's testified, yes. Also testified. So you did. You had the top diplomat, the top of the intelligence community, the top public health official, all um, uh, telling you with some confidence level that, that uh, the most likely... Um, origin of this was a lab leak. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately for political so, reasons and political narratives, um, it was difficult. Um, so did you talk with Dr. Fauci during this time frame when you get in in May and, and over the next several months, did you talk to Dr. Fauci anytime? No. Never spoke with Dr. Fauci? No. Um, do you find that strange when he's out saying something directly contrary to the Secretary of State, to the Director of National Intelligence, and to the top virologist, Dr. Redfield, that Dr. Fauci wouldn't talk with you? Yeah, to, to be clear, there were, there were folks within the coronavirus task force that were communicating, you know, medical and scientific information to the intelligence community, not me directly, but none of that information was frankly consistent with what we've talked about, what the intelligence showed. Um, uh, again, some of those individuals, to include Dr. Fauci, were, were promoting the idea um, that this was natural origins and notwithstanding, uh, you know, the language that was read, they were referring to it publicly as a conspiracy theory in certain conversations. Dr. Collins called us conspiracy theorists if you believed in the, in, in the lab as the, as the origin. Tell me your, why do you think Fauci and Collins took that? I got my theory and I think I'm right, but I'd like to hear from the director of national intelligence what he thinks Fauci and Collins' motivation for sharing false information with the American people. Well, I think the best evidence of that is their own conversations, which, which say that they didn't want unwarranted or unwanted, or they think the term was unwanted attention to the relationships um, that were taking place between Western virologists and those working within maybe the, the, the Wuhan you Institute think maybe of Virology and funding sources for some yeah. of that research. Our money to a lab in China that wasn't up to code, that was doing gain-of-function research, and that's where this thing came from. That's what they didn't want us to know. You agree with that, Mr. Ratcliffe? I do agree with that. That's important. Thank you. I yield back. And that's our show for today. I want to thank you all for listening. Have a nice day.